Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good evening, friends. Welcome back uh, to our study of Revelation. Uh, we're getting close to the end. And I know the sermon series is long and gone. It's, we're kind of moved on. We're in front of the Spirit now, which I hope you're enjoying that study. Uh, but we have uh, three weeks left, including this week. And, and we're coming to the end of the story, this story of Revelation and, and these series of visions that make up one revelation for John. But as we come to the end, it actually today reminded me, I'm reading a, a, a mystery novel. I don't know if any of you enjoy mysteries uh, where you uh, uncover like, kind of a secret truth, but I'm getting to the end of the novel. In fact, there's a, I'm listening to it on Audible. There's about 50 minutes left. And, and what's happening at this point in the novel is that key characters are being revealed for who they really are. And, and you're kind of having these aha moments. Now, this is a novel that my 14-year-old daughter has already read multiple times. And so I was driving her out to Stained Glass Theater. She's in a play this week by, uh, about Fannie Mae Crosby, a little commercial plug for you. Uh, so I was driving her to Stained Glass Theater and then driving back uh, to church and, and listening to that. And on the way to Stained Glass Theater tonight to drop her off, uh, I was listening to it and all these things were being uncovered, uh, revealed. And she could see my face, but I'd look at her face while I was driving. It was safe. Um, while, while I was driving, and I'd be like, I can't. Like, how did you not tell me this? And of course, I'm like, don't tell me this the whole way through the book. But these characters over and over again, and, and multiple story plot lines, I went, never, never saw that coming. Revelation, as we get to the end, is continuing to unveil the truth of the characters that are, make up an everyday part of our world. And we've already had, from chapter 12 on, several of these characters introduced. Chapter 12, we had a woman being chased by a dragon, and that dragon introduced us to a beast. We're going to see that beast again. And then we saw a second beast. Those three characters, or four characters, if you count the woman, introduced in chapter 12 and 13. And then we had the seven bulls. Now we come to yet another character, again a woman, and if you remember, uh, my suggestion to you is that when you uh, discover the character of a woman in Revelation, oftentimes they represent a people. Oftentimes they represent a nation or a people. Um, we're going to find again a woman in this chapter or in this section. Uh, this time she is a, a prostitute. And we'll find again in chapter 19 another character, uh, this time a bride. But there's characters that are going to be revealed and in fact, as we come to this prostitute, uh, we come to the last introduction of our characters in Revelation, and then the rest of chapters 17 through 20, what we'll come to next week in chapters 19 and 20, is the judgment of those characters. So it's kind of the, the last chapters in a novel. One more character revealed tonight, and then that character, that prostitute, is going to be dealt with. But then in reverse order, the characters in chapters 12 and 13 are going to experience judgment from Jesus. So the beast, the second beast, is going to be judged first, and then the first beast, and then ultimately the dragon, that ancient serpent called the devil, is going to be judged. And what we have in Revelation 17 through 20 is this final conclusion of the conflict in this narrative that is taking place in Revelation. And so we want to acknowledge the dynamics that are taking place. I also used um, some, a couple large words last week, so I put them back on the handout for you. Um, but I think these, these words get at what John is doing, what these visions are doing in this section of Revelation, more so now than even what we saw at the beginning. As we come to the end of the story, there's a, there's a clearing, uh, there's a separation of the two people groups. 
So the word that I use there is the word demarcation. These are the people who belong to the lamb. These are the people who are worshiping the dragon. Specifically, we talked about those who are, those who are sealed, a part of the, the people of the lamb, and those who are marked, marked with the, the mark of the beast. Those who are a, a part of the city of New Jerusalem. We'll talk about New Jerusalem in our last session. And those who are the people of the earth, the earth dwellers, or the people who are a part of what John calls or what the visions call Babylon, the people of the bride and the people of the prostitute. And this demarcation is this um, marking that says, this is who this group is, and this is who this group is, and it's a marking of their identity. The question for you then becomes, who am I? What is my identity? Where do I belong? What traits do I have that put me in this camp or in this camp? And what Revelation doesn't want you to be able to do as it comes to the end is to be neutral. It wants you to declare your allegiance. And obviously what Revelation wants is it wants you to, to declare your allegiance to the Lamb in worship. And so we will experience some of that dynamic tonight where there is this call for us to change our allegiance from one city to another, from becoming, from, from our allegiance to a, a woman, the prostitute, and to becoming the bride. That word that we used last week is the word repentance. Repentance is a changing of allegiance. We also, in this dynamic, also mentioned the word divergence. Now, demarcation says, this is who you are, this is who you are. Divergence is the separation of those two groups. To where finally we come to Revelation 21 and 22, the picture we call heaven, the picture where I wrote the word home in my Bible when I was a high school student. And we're going to find seven times the phrase, and there was no more, and there was no more, and there was no more, and there was no more. Why? Because God has separated those. Jesus would talk about the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the weeds. And those things are no more. Judgment has happened. But there's also a convergence. There's a coming together of the presence of God and the presence of those who are worshipers of the Lamb. They come together. So that's what we're a part of. We're, we're in the middle of that dynamic happening in this book. I want to talk to you just briefly as we get started about the contrast specifically of the prostitute and the bride. Notice in chapter 17, verse 1, right away in our section this evening, John talks about this vision and says this, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you. Specifically, this vision is for this purpose. I want to show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is sitting on many waters. Now, we'll talk about the identity of the prostitute in just a moment. But I want you to see the parallel of this vision that John has to a vision we're going to talk about in two weeks. You would have to turn to chapter 21, verse 9. It's another vision. John is invited again. Come. And in chapter 21, verse 9, the invitation is this. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. John's invited to see both of these women and to compare them. And we'll discover that there are plenty of things to compare and contrast. Obviously, with one, you have purity. With the other, you just don't. With one, one is dressed in scarlet and jewels, all kinds of different things. We're going to talk about those things in just a moment. Um, but wealth, and the other has a white garment. 
given to her by the lamb that is washed and bright and clean. One is going to have a feast. Now, the feast is actually going to be on her and those who have committed adultery with her. It's going to be a feast of destruction, as in birds of the air kind of a feast. But the other is going to have a wedding banquet. Now, in this kind of COVID, post-COVID world, wedding banquets, I've not been a part of a wedding feast in the last year. But wedding feasts, many of us have participated in those. And and what an opportunity to celebrate uh, love and union. And we talk about convergence, the coming together of two. That is what's going to happen with the bride and the lamb. They are going to uh, have this wedding banquet that is going to take place in this section. So we have this comparison contrast. Let me give you another one, another comparison contrast between two women. In chapter 12, the woman who gives birth to the child who is chased by the dragon, one of the things we said about her is that she looks like Israel, but she also looks like Mary. She looks like God's people that give birth to the Messiah. And then when the Messiah ascends, is chased by the dragon and she goes off into the wilderness. So let me give you a passage. Chapter 12, verse six. She fled into the wilderness. Here in chapter 17, verse three, we're gonna find that this vision of this prostitute takes place in the wilderness. And the wilderness is this image where the the woman who was the people of God, she fled, and now we have this prostitute that's there with the woman of God, and here we are being tempted. Now, wilderness oftentimes is a picture, a metaphor of the temptation of God's people. You have God's people wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. You have Jesus being tempted in the desert for 40 days. But you have this image that takes place of this wandering that we have. But what happens on the other side of the wilderness? Promised land. Don't worry, we're getting there. I want you to start to see some of the comparison and contrast that take place uh, as we compare some of the women in Revelation and what they represent when it comes to their characteristics and the imagery that is there. We've also talked about the, Im- the enemy tactics. And I know that it's easy for us to get lost in the weeds. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna suggest to you and confess to you, um, this is easy for me to do not only in my study, but also in my teaching with you all. Because I want to try to explain every little detail. But I know at times, what can be dangerous about that is we can get lost in wanting to figure out every single nuance that we actually miss the spiritual lesson of what the Holy Spirit is wanting to teach us. Can I suggest to you that that is at times something I have to confess, even in chapter 17, there's some details here that I go, I really just want to understand what this eighth king is all about and these 10 horns are all about but I can actually miss the discipleship lesson of what Jesus is trying to communicate to me when it comes to opening my eyes and seeing the spiritual war and the temptations that are taking place all around us as God's people in this season of wilderness. Um, I don't know about you if you wear glasses or not. Um, I put on my glasses for the first time today in in a year because of COVID, the mask makes them all fog up. And so I just kind of tossed them to the side. I put them on today because I was up late last night and my allergies were bothering me. And I was like, oh, I'm going to take these things back off again. But I remember it reminded me because the first time I got those glasses, I was in eighth grade. I didn't know I need glasses. Some of you maybe have this experience. Um, I told my parents I'm no longer able to read. We still had a chalkboard back then in eighth grade. No longer able to read the chalkboard. I'm in the back row and I'm having to like look at the person next to me to get the notes from the board. It looks like I'm cheating. Mom, I, I, that, that's not me. Uh, I think I might need glasses. So they took me in. I remember uh, Fort Morgan, Colorado, Main Street. Took me into the eye doctor, came out of the eye doctor with glasses. I looked up at the water tower. It's still there. I looked up at the water tower and I went, when did they paint the name of our town on the water tower? 
My mom is like, I'm a horrible mom, right? I mean, in that moment, it's like, oh, I remember seeing clearly for the first time. It's one of the things I want for you out of Revelation. It's for Revelation to reveal to you at times uh, some of the spiritual realities of what is actually happening behind the curtain, behind the veil of our world. And, and so when it comes to the enemy tactics, we recognize that the dragon, the, the ancient enemy we have, often uses deception. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And he accuses. And yet the accuser has been thrown down. Revelation has already taught that. We talked about the first beast. This beast will come back again. And one of the things I suggested to you, at the very least, this beast is a picture of political power that is in opposition to God's kingdom. It is an imitation of God's kingdom. And so it looks like Rome. It looks like Babylon. It looks like Egypt. I think John's audience would have seen it, this image of the first beast, and said, it's Rome. But I think Revelation is also, because of what we've talked about, by the cycles of Revelation, is painting a picture, saying, no, this happens over and over again. It's Egypt, it's Babylon, it's Rome, and let's go out into the future. Is there going to be an ultimate first beast? I don't know, there seems to be room for that. But it does seem to be this, thing, this pattern that happens over and over again, where you can look out, every generation can look out at the newspaper and go, that kingdom is a false ruler standing up against God, a opposition to God, against the righteousness of God or the justice of God, the things of God, and that kingdom is doing the same thing. And they're pushing God's people. They're oppressing or persecuting God's people. So the first beast will come up again. Uh, the second beast, we said, uh, is called a false apostle, a false teacher. And that, that second beast, if you were John's audience, you probably would have recognized that as well as being a component of what was going on in Rome, where you were being forced to or enticed to worship the emperor or worship some of the local gods as a part of the trade guilds. And so it's this false worship, this imitation worship that's not true worship of what is happening. And again, John's audience would have been, yes, we see that spiritual truth behind what is going on in our world. Let's peel back the curtain. There's a spiritual component to this. Well, today we come to the prostitute. And each of these images and each of these characters have overlapping characteristics. You want to know why? I think it's because the dragon stands behind all of them. And they all share characteristics with the dragon, the source, the puppeteer of these characters. And the prostitute, similar to the first beast and second beast, the prostitute is, is going to be called Babylon, the great city. But she, by the very nature of the, the metaphor, the image, as a prostitute, seduces God's people and other people. And she does so, I think, through two means. One of them is through wealth. We're going to talk about economic prosperity as a key, key uh, tactic of how she seduces people away from the throne of God and away from worship and, and, and allegiance to Jesus. One of the things that I want for us is to put glasses on, spiritual glasses on Revelation and go, do we see this at times in our world today? Do we see God's people at times being seduced away from a faithfulness and allegiance to Jesus and in bed with, that's John's metaphor and honestly an Old Testament metaphor as well, in bed with the culture around them? Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament image of the prostitute or of a prostitute that is symbolic of a nation like Babylon or Nineveh or Tyre, a city like Tyre, then, then you're familiar with the fact that it's also not only economic prosperity that's seductive, but also idolatry that's connected to that, worshiping of idols. 
If you're familiar with the worship of idols, at times the worship of idols, often the worship of idols is connected to prosperity. I worship this idol so that it will bring fertility to my crops, fertility to my wife, fertility to my pocketbook, my bank account. I I want more. So I want to manipulate these gods so that I can get more. And, and so these two things, economic prosperity and the worship of idols, is connected. This prostitute looks an awful lot like, commentators notice, an awful lot like Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, who seduced God's people by getting them to worship Baal, a fertility god. And she looks an awful lot like several of the moments in Old Testament history where God's people were seduced. Now, here's the in- interesting thing. Israel is also called a prostitute because she cheats on God with other nations, Egypt is an example, and she cheats on the faithfulness of God with idols. And so this image is a packed image that is one that, again, gives us a picture of how Satan uses, now notice kind of the full picture of all these characters, political, religious, cultural, economic systems in our world. And sometimes you need to see those systems as overlapping. Political, religious, cultural, economic systems that are pushing God's people, pulling God's people, seducing God's people away from true worship. This goes all the way back to Revelation chapter seven. We said the seven churches are dealing with three things, compromise, complacency, and conflict. Conflict meaning persecution. And so we find this character in line with helping us opening up our eyes to what we need to be able to see when it comes to how the enemy is attacking us as God's people in our faithfulness. So as we come to Revelation chapter 17, verses one through 18, um, let's ask this question in your handout. So what do we know about the prostitute? And what I want to do is actually just read these first eight 18 verses are all of chapter 17 for you and come back and talk about the identity of the prostitute as well as the identity of the beast, this beast we've already had introduced in Revelation chapter 12 and 13. Then, verse 1, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Now again, that's the main purpose of the vision is to see this judgment with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality, the dwellers of the earth, remember earth dwellers are those who are not believers. They're not citizens of heaven. So these are not those who are sealed by the Lamb. The dwellers of the earth have become drunk. They're not sensible. They've lost their minds. You ever look at the newspaper and go, we've lost our minds. Verse 3. He carried me away in the spirit. That's John's way of talking about a vision. Into a wilderness. And I saw a woman. She was sitting on a scarlet beast. There's a picture for you. By the way, Revelation would probably not be PG-13. She's sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. Again, this beast uh, has names on it that it is claiming that are in, uh, in opposition to God. So, for instance, here's an example. Uh, Suetonius tells us that Domitian wanted to be called my Lord and my God when you addressed him. Now, whether Suetonius is telling the whole truth or not, sometimes Greco-Roman historians were known to exaggerate. But if that's true, that, that's pretty blasphemous. I mean, if I were to walk in today and you're like, hey, Jim, I'm like, oh, no, I changed my name. You know, or when they ask you, hey, do we address you as Mr. or Dr.? No, 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 Lord and God. That's how I want my title. You know, that's how I want my mail mailed to me. Now, when I was a senior minister, gotta be, 
I hadn't thought about this. I did receive a letter in the mail one time, and I could tell it was from someone who had no idea how to address uh, uh, our denominational uh, role as a minister or as a pastor. So I, I literally got a letter, I think, that had every title that you could think of. Reverend, Father, Pastor, Minister, Jim Dalrymple. I'm like, I got to keep that, right? Like, as, <laughs> at some point, it's like, um, and, and the reality is for this, the blasphemous names Again, if, if this, this beast that we're going to talk about and this woman is standing in opposition, they're claiming something that is God's, their imitation. So later on, we're going to see that God is described, or the lamb is described as Lord of lords and king of kings. The truth comes out. Now, imitation is a word we don't like. I, I mean, some of you do. Some, some of you buy, for instance, some of you buy imitation cereal. How dare you, right? I mean, I'm just, just going to acknowledge that. Like, at some point when my mom would buy imitation cereal, I'm like, mom, it's not even real. Like, imitation Doritos, I'm sorry. My wife buys imitation Doritos at Walmart. And my, my oldest daughter and I, I don't know, we just go, they're just not the real thing. They just sit in the cabinet, right? Now, now some of you, imitation Pop-Tarts, another thing. It's like, why eat cardboard? Pop-Tarts are bad enough. Get imitation ones. Um, and, and there's other, I mean, you, you all are judging me right now. I get it, right? I'm just trying to make a point. Some of you are like, yeah, but imitation Coke, right? So you have your thing. I know how it goes, right? And, and here we have imitation gods, substitutes for the real thing. Problem is this. Some of you are okay with the substitute rather than the real thing. You're okay with a political power that makes you feel safe in this world rather than the king of kings who will allow you to have peace of mind no matter what happens in this world because of his throne. Some of you, when it comes to imitation, will worship at the throne of an idol, whether that be money or career, rather than letting God identify you as his child and finding your identity in him. Some of you, the prostitute is is your spiritual reality. You've traded in the real God who will meet your truest, deepest needs for something that will give you a short-term, momentary high. We could list off things, can't we? It could be applause. It could be an attaboy, an attagirl. It can be so many things in this world. Idolatry is so easy to slip into. So I want you to notice the, the imitation nature of these because we can get lost in the details. What we find here is we have this parody where the prostitute and the beast, again, look like the lamb. And they, they want to take his place. And there's this mockery that happens of them. So the blasphemous names, it had seven heads and 10 horns of this beast. So again, we mentioned that these seven heads and 10 horns back in chapter 13 looks like a, remember what I said with Plato, you have all the beasts in Daniel chapter seven, you put all those beasts together. This beast looks like them. I think my best guess is this from studying this, and I could be wrong. I just want to humbly admit this to you. I could be wrong. What I think is going on here is we have from Daniel chapter seven, the images, multiple visions of beasts, and there are multiple visions of kingdoms that are going to come and be in opposition to God. And now we have this compilation of all those beasts, and it's this image that John's audience would have went, that looks like Rome. But we can also go, and that looks like, and that looks like, and that looks like, and that looks like, because the spiritual truth behind it is still true. Because Satan is still working that way. He's still using the first beast as a spiritual reality. That's why it has multiple heads, because it's one kingdom after another, seven heads. 
And there's multiple kings, 10. Those numbers, if we weigh them, and we can get lost in the detail of counting because it's hard to know where to start counting and where to stop counting and who to count and not to count. I mean, believe me, I've been reading all day on just those horns and on those heads. But if we back up for just a moment and go big picture, this is a beast who is a false kingdom. And the reality is, is it's happening over and over again, those pictures of seven and 10. So, so notice this beast. We'll, we'll kind of keep reading. This, this woman sitting on the beast, blasphemous name, seven head, ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. I want you to highlight or circle that word scarlet. Because not only is the beast going to be dressed in scarlet, the woman is going to be dressed in scarlet. And this color, as weird as it is, colors and revelation matter. This color is an echo of the color of the dragon. The identity is a shared identity. Now, if you follow colors in Revelation, white represents what? God's people, pure. And we find that this color is important. Now, purple and scarlet were royalty colors, weren't they? So this makes sense of the first beast, that it's arrayed in uh, color, and it's also important for us to recognize of this woman. She's arrayed in a color that is representing a royal color, a wealthy color. So the woman is arrayed in purple. She's adorned with gold, jewels, pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup that is full of, notice what it's full of, abominations and the impurities of her sexual morality. Sin. It's a cup of sin. Here, drink this. Have you ever had someone give you something to drink that you're like, no, thank you? Problem is, is that what we find is not only are God's people, but the nations are taking this cup and they're chugging it. This woman is dressed, notice her luxurious, um, J.K. Bill says she's draped with these luxuries. Here's what's interesting. Later on, the city of Babylon is going to fall. Guess what people are going to cry about? The wealth of Babylon that is no more. You want to know exactly the list? You, you could actually go to Revelation chapter 18. We'll see in just a minute. And you can actually walk through this list. Gold, jewels, pearls. So this list is going to come up later. That's a reason why I argue that she is a picture of the prosperity, the economic prosperity that is tempting God's people to be faithful to her rather than faithful to Christ. On her forehead was written a name. Now, sometimes, it depends on who you ask whether this is accurate or not. We have some evidence that prostitutes in the ancient world actually would put like a billboard on their forehead. Not only with their name, but also services rendered, as grotesque as that is. Uh, we do that today, by the way. It's called a website. And so we have this name that is on her forehead. Now, notice how everything is identified in Revelation, sealed, marked, named. It's part of the demarcation. There is a name on her forehead, and this name is a mystery. Now, mystery is a word that's rooted all the way back in Daniel. But here's what's interesting. As Jesus comes, mystery is becoming unveiled. And, and all, over and over again, we go, I never saw God doing it that way. Yeah, that, that's kind of God's point. And mysteries, most often as we come to the New Testament, are unveiled, like they're unveiled too. For instance, one of the mysteries is that Jesus would come as God's servant, but also be the son of God in the flesh. God would come incarnate in the flesh. That's a mystery. People didn't see that coming. But then they look back on scripture and they go, oh, we see it everywhere. Isaiah chapter 40, the servant. Isaiah chapter 51, Isaiah chapter, all, all over we start to go, oh, that mystery is unveiled. The Gentile inclusion, 
the Gentiles being a part of the community of, of Christ, of being grafted in to the, the people of God, the, the nation of God, the church, we start to look at that and we go, oh, like we didn't see that coming, although it's everywhere in Isaiah. We find it in Abraham's promise that this promise would be a blessing to all of the nations. And so what we find in this word mystery over and over again is this mystery is revealed. What we find here is the mystery of her name is this. Her name is Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. You, if you were a part of the, the people of Israel or a part of God's people, this name, Babylon, would be familiar to you. She is pictured as a prostitute, Babylon. It was a nation that oppressed God's people and opposed God's people. But then when they were exiled into Babylon, here's what you got to know. When they lived in Babylon... When you live in Babylon, you do the things of Babylon. What happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. I, they didn't make that up back then, right? It was in Hebrew. Uh, they, you know, so the dynamics that happened there is this, is God's people lost their identity. This is the book of Daniel. I mean, the easier part of the book of Daniel, right? The opening chapters, Daniel. I'm going to not eat the food of the king. 10 days, test me. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We're not going to bow down to the idol. I'm going to pray. And over and over again, they are thrown into fiery furnace, lion's den. So Babylon was a place where God's people were tempted to stand up for him. And they were tempted at times by the wealth and the luxury and the idolatry and pleasures of Babylon. Now, if, if I could take just that spiritual truth, because I think this is what, what Israel and God's people did and what John's doing, what this vision is doing, is they took that moment and they made it a character type and said, it's like this. She is Babylon the Great. The spiritual reality of what Babylon was, she is that spiritual reality. And she does this over and over again. And so we look at her and we recognize she's the mother. She's the leader of all of this. She's the, she, she is kind of the spiritual reality behind all of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman and notice she's drunk. She's drunk on the blood of the saints. Remember chapter six, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood. So she, like the first beast, she, like the second beast, she, like the dragon, is a part of those who are God's people being killed for the faith. And as John writes this, I can't help but recognize that he knows some of these people that are a part of this image of blood that she's drinking. It's grotesque. Again, it's not PG-13. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Now, this isn't marveled as in I'm attracted to her. Some, some commentators would have you believe that. This is the idea of like shock and awe and everything. Like she's beautiful and horrible and everything at the same time. How could this be? Do you ever just like look at the world around you and go, ah, I'm speechless. I think that's part of John's. And sometimes I think when we put on the spiritual glasses and we look at our world, we go, oh. I'm raising three kids right now, y'all, and it's, it's one of those things where I look at our culture and I go, I don't even know. I don't even know how, like, how to protect and teach and give wisdom and discernment and discretion. And I hear stories and I, and I, I see temptations and I see God's people. And again, I, sin doesn't shock me as much anymore. I was, again, a preaching minister for 10 years, a leader in church. I've been with college students for the last eight years. I, I mean, I read the newspaper. I watch the headlines. Sin is one of those things that doesn't shock me anymore. But every now and again, it it leaves me to marvel. Sin is brutal. It destroys. It kills. 
The angel of the Lord said to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast and the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw. Now, this phrase is difficult, but I think what's going on here is there's a mockery happening here of the parody. This beast was and is not and is about to rise in the bottomless pit and go to destruction. I think what's going on here is this. It's a mockery that is a comparison to God. What is said over and over again in Revelation about God? He who was and who is and who what? Is to come. And I think this is a mockery of just the temporal nature of what is temporary. It's an imitation. So it was, it's really not, and it's going to come from the bottomless pit, and it's going to go to destruction. Like, there's like no hope to put in this. And here's the thing. God's people are putting their hope in these kinds of imitation things. Imitation political powers, imitation desires, and security. The dwellers of the earth demarcation, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it is, it was, it is not, and it is to come. So the people will go, wow, look at that. This calls for mind wisdom. Seven heads are the seven mountains. Notice the beast had seven heads. We'll try to pick some of this apart in just a minute. On which the woman is seated. She's sitting on the seven, uh, the seven eighth head, as we see verses 10, 11. They are the seven kings, five of whom have fallen, the other one has not yet come, and when he does come, he remain only a little while. As for the beast that was, is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh, and it goes into destruction. And the ten horns that we saw are ten kings who have not yet received a royal power, but they are to receive the authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are, as in all the horns, all of one mind, and they hand their power and authority over to the beast. And sometimes you read that and you go, whoa, what just happened there? Again, I could be wrong, but I've also looked at a number of different sources that, that try to draw lines to go, this one starts with Julius Caesar, and it goes, and here's the seventh one, and it's Galbo, right after Nero. And you kind of go, okay. Well, maybe we don't start from him. Maybe we start from Nero, and maybe we go forward seven here. And I, I've seen a lot of that, and I go, okay. Like, some of it's intriguing. I, I don't know that it gives me many answers. Here's what I do know. Oftentimes, it doesn't give me this spiritual lens through which to look at this, to go, here's what makes me a better disciple of Jesus. Some of it kind of intrigues me. Uh, seven heads, maybe there's seven kings that John's audience would have known and they would have counted and they would have understood this. Remember, this is written to John's audience first. And then after those seven heads comes 10 kings and those 10 kings come later. Or maybe, just maybe, if we're consistent, and again, you get to decide how you want to understand this and interpret this, but maybe that number seven is as it has been or how we have understood it throughout. Maybe seven is a depiction of completeness. And it's really describing all kingdoms and kings and 10 the same kind of things, kingdom and kings. Maybe it's seven meaning all of the Roman empire and 10 meaning the kings that come after, all of the kingdoms that come after that. I don't know. I'm just gonna confess to you, I don't know. But here's what I do know when I back up from this is that they go to wait and make war against the lamb, these kingdoms, if it is a depiction of all the kingdoms of the world that look like, that, that act on behalf of the dragon that look like this beast, they go to make war against the lamb, but the lamb's ultimately gonna conquer them. Why? Because he is king of kings, he's lord of lords, and he together with those who are called faithful and chosen are part of this overcoming, this conquering that takes place. So what can I communicate to you in the midst of my ignorance to say, I don't know exactly what John's meaning here to his audience? Here's what I can say. Is your allegiance with Jesus? Is your loyalty with Jesus? Now, I think there's going to be a litmus test in chapter 18. Because it's easy for us to go, yes, I'm with Jesus. 
until the rug gets pulled out from some of the things that we're actually finding our security in. Until some of the things that we find pleasure in are actually taken away from us and we cry. That's when our idols are exposed for being who they are and where they are in our heart. And so we have this demarcation that takes place. Verse 15, and the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Again, again, I think this is a picture of all time, all creation, all kingdoms. She is always at work. The mother of prostitutes, she's always at work. And the 10 horns you saw, they're the beast and they hate the prostitute. This is intriguing to me because you find this conflict that happens now between these puppets of Satan. They will make her a desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now, part of this is because God has put it in their hearts. He's dividing them to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. What's going on here? Here's what I think is happening is that it's not much for these powers to start to turn on one another. As they start to continue to have consecutive, you have the consecutive kingdoms and consecutive kings, what do you see when it comes to economic, economic prosperity and luxury? Another kingdom rise up. Another power rise up. Another beast rise up and make war against a nation that has economic, economic prosperity, and all of that is destroyed. And you have kingdoms that are rising up one over the other. And it looks like they're defeated. It looks like the, the, the beast is defeated. It looks like the power that is this spiritual reality that's happening over again. So Rome gets destroyed. So what? Another nation takes its place. I mean, in our lifetime, I mean, I grew up as a kid who played the United States versus you fill in the blank. I grew up in the 80s. You could probably fill in the blank. And we have our own images of who we put in the blank of who the beast is. But the reality is, if that whatever we're going to call it, that looks like a beast falls, another one's going to take its place. It's part of the reason why we at times look at Revelation, we go, oh, it's happening now, it's happening now. Because the answer is yes, when you put on the spiritual lenses, the, it is happening now. Will it increase to one point to where it is the ultimate end? Yeah, obviously it will. I believe Jesus is coming back. But are we there yet? I don't know. Here's what I do know. Put on the spiritual lenses and ask the question of identity and ask the question of allegiance to Jesus because that's what matters most is are you being faithful while you're also under attack? Now, in verse 18, the woman is identified. She's identified as the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. I think John's audience would have identified this woman as looking like Roman culture, that looked like Babylon's culture. But again, I think the image is big enough for us to go, but that image is always true, and it's always at work in the world around us. And so we have, again, Satan using as a puppeteer these powers that are in play. Now, as we turn to chapter 18, um, what we begin to discover is that this woman right away is going to be judged. Now, we've already seen that she is judged in part because of the destruction of those that she was aligned with. But she is going to fall. And this becomes, becomes the start of a tipping over of dominoes that leads us all the way to chapter 19 and all the way into chapter 20. Again, Jesus is going to ride in on a white horse next week. Uh, not literally next week on stage. That would be, um, I would be okay with that. By the way, if that does happen next week, I would be okay. But he's going to come in riding, and it's going to be a triumphal procession, a parade where he is riding in with the enemies in tow behind him. This is a Roman, this is Roman uh, imagery that is very pervasive in Roman culture. 
and behind him are going to be all of the enemies that he has conquered, and the last one is going to be Satan and death. And he is going to put, he's going to execute them. He's going to put them to death. He's going to judge them because he's faithful and true. So this is the first domino to fall, is chapter 18, verses 1 through 24. And this echo of a Babylon that has fallen, let me just read the first couple of verses. After this, I saw another angel. Again, it's, a, it's an image, it's another vision. Coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with its glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, as in the prostitute that has the name card that says Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. By the way, these are things that fill up the wilderness in the Old Testament. It's judgment. When you're exiled and people are taken out, beasts come and live there. And so we have this, this destitute, this wilderness that is taking place when it comes to this imagery of Babylon. But she's fallen. She's broken. She's no longer able to stand. This is imagery that would be unimaginable if you lived in the time of Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. I want to make it contemporary. Because I've tried to, tried to even talk to my kids to go, can you imagine a time in the world where the United States is not? I'm not trying to forecast or make any judgment calls on, about our nation. But one of the things that's actually difficult for us when we live in a place, again, like a fish in the ocean, is it's hard for us to fathom a world where what we find security in is no longer there. I mean, think about it. So in Jeremiah and Isaiah's day, Babylon, who was the superpower, the political superpower, the religious superpower, the economic superpower. The forecast that Babylon would fall is unimaginable. And yet when we come to Jeremiah, let me just read from you, Jeremiah 51, verses 6 through 8. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Get out of town. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment. For the time has come of the Lord's vengeance, and the repayment is he is rendering her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunk. The nations drank of her wine. Therefore, the nations went crazy mad. Suddenly, Babylon has fallen and been broken. Cry for her, wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. Jeremiah 51, verse 45, later on says, go out from the middle of her, my people. Does this sound like what we're going to hear in Revelation chapter 17 and 18? Yeah, it's the same song. It's the soundtrack. You ever listen to a soundtrack and then heard that soundtrack again later in another movie and you went, that's that, that's that same song. Yeah, this is the same song. Same story. Second episode. Isaiah chapter 21 verse 9 is another example. These are just examples for you. Fallen, fallen is Babylon and all the carved images of her gods, God has shattered to the ground. Her idols have fallen. As a culture, she has fallen. So in, in Isaiah's day, I say that to say this, in Isaiah's day, Jeremiah's day, it was unimaginable that Babylon would fall. For John's audience, living under the persecution of Rome and under the temptations of Rome, under the economic prosperity, prosperity of Rome, it was unfathomable for them that Rome would come to a place where it would collapse on itself. Now, all of these temptations that are part of Roman culture would have been true for these early believers. We've already mentioned the trade guilds. That in order for you to continue to make money, if you were a, a tradesperson, you would need to continue to be a part of a local trades guild. Now, to be a part of a local trades guild, to be a part of this, we would call it a union, 
to be a part of this union of, of people, you would need to worship at times the, the patron deity or goddess of that trade guild and make sacrifices to that god or goddess in order to stay loyal to that group. If you didn't, you might be kicked out. And if you did, you would lose money. So what do you think the temptation is going to be? Compromise for the sake of my pocketbook. Now, that's just one example. Rome loved to conquer other nations under the promise of the peace of Rome. Align with us, and, and you will have the prosperity, the wealth of Rome, and the Roman army behind you. Here you have the, the first beast, and you have the prostitute riding together. And nations were aligning themselves with Rome because, uh, first of all, it's either that or have the Roman army come through. But second of all, look at all the luxuries. I don't know if you've ever journeyed through kind of even just some of the, the archaeological artifacts that we have where um, you look at the ancient world, you go, wow, they didn't have it all that bad. Especially if you aligned yourself with the power. In, in my time in Israel, if you aligned yourself with Greek customs and Greek culture or Rome, you might be like Pilate or Herod the Great, it's a good example, who in his fortresses had the hot baths and had gold-plated mirrors, what we would call them, behind him so it could reflect the sun. You look at some of the luxuries. You go, yeah, that, that's why they aligned themselves with Greece or with Rome or these kingdoms, because of the luxuries it brought to them. And so we have this, this image of Babylon, this image that is going to continue on, and this temptation that we have as God's people that has been a an ongoing temptation for God's people. So it goes on, verse three, all the nations. Notice again, it's bigger than one nation. It's bigger than just Rome. Although even if it is Rome as a, a first example for Roman audience, other nations are coming to Rome. All the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. When you see sexual immorality, think idolatry, but also think economic prosperity. It is all three of those things. Is it pleasure? Yes. Is it desires? Yes. But money buys you all that. And the kings of the earth, they've committed immorality with her. And the merchants, these are all going to come up again in just a moment. The merchants, those who are tradespeople of the earth, they have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. I don't always know what to make of this. But I live, and I teach my kids that we live in the wealthiest nation, perhaps depending on how you measure inflation, in the history of the world. As in like, as in human history of the world. My son mowed a lawn yesterday for a neighbor. Spent an evening. He made 30 bucks. It was a big lawn. He was tired. He's 11. It was good work for him. That's more money than what some of the people I know in Haiti make in a month. I, at times, look with the lenses of revelation and am reminded of the temptation. And I'm just going to be very personal because I don't want to, I want to wear my glasses. I want you to wear your glasses, okay? I'm reminded that I'm accountable to be someone who aligns my life and my resources to the kingdom of God rather than to the kingdom and culture and pleasures of this world. You have to decide how to apply that. And you have to decide what that looks like in your life. You're accountable. 
and I'm accountable. There's something powerful about money. And, and this is a lecture I give actually in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's, it's part of a lecture. Um, I pull out a $20 bill in my college classroom. Now, this is a $5 bill because I give all my money to my three kids. Um, and I have a $5 bill left. Um, but I pull, out, I pull out a $20 bill and I say, you know, what's this worth? I've done this for youth groups as well. And they always go, you're an idiot. It's worth $20. No, no, no. Like, what's it worth? I mean, it's paper, it's cotton. I don't know if you knew that. This is made out of, we talk about paper money. It's made out of cotton and ink, and this one has one of those little weird strips in it, right? So it has some other components to it. But it's basically pocket lint you find in your jeans. I mean, if I, you know, my pen leaked in my, my jeans, it's, it's, it's worthless. Other than the fact that it's a note that says it's worth this much and I can trade, make a trade for it. And I know that some of you even work for, and you ever not, never actually get these for your work. You just get some zeros and ones in your bank account that says you have money in your bank account. That's a little scary, isn't it? But you trade your time for this. I don't know how much you trade for an hour. It's different. But for my college students, $20 is like, that's a generous estimate for how much they trade an hour of their life for. My son, $30 for a couple hours last night, $15 an hour. Traded a couple hours of his life to... Yes, serve, but to be compensated, $30. So in essence, you have traded your life for this. No wonder it has so much power. And when we hold on to it, rather than giving it, when we hoard it in greed, or, or when we only spend it on ourselves, rather than aligning it with kingdom purposes. It, it becomes a litmus test, an A litmus test. It's not that money is evil. It's not that you're evil for even having money. It's amoral. But it's a litmus test. It's an indicator of what's going on inside of our heart, and it's an indicator of our allegiance. It's a demarcation. That's part of the reason why I think God calls us and, and says, I, I want you to respond in worship, not, not as a command, but as a response of, I've given you everything. Will you, will you give to me? We give to others. And when you give to other people, you're, you're not just giving money. You're giving what's behind that money, which is the time you've given. You're giving your life away. So when Jesus says, store up treasure in heaven, I think it's a riddle. I think Jesus is being kind of tricky. Not, not tricky in a bad way. Tricky as in like the teacher kind of way. He's exposing your heart. Because I don't know, maybe you're like me and you grew up thinking, man, I'm going to give in the offering plate because boy, I want like a mansion in heaven. This is immature gym, okay? But it's actually exposed my heart of what is really treasure in my kingdom. This is only worth anything in this kingdom. I can't go anywhere else and spend this. I have to exchange it for currency in that kingdom. And in the kingdom of God, what has value? It's people. You want to store up treasure in heaven, you use this and you exchange it for what is actually treasure in heaven and you get more people there and you take more people there and you lead more people to Jesus. That's why Jesus says, make earthly, earthly friends with worldly treasure. Make, make friends with earthly treasure. Leverage it for kingdom purposes. And so what we have in this is, is this, just these spiritual glasses that I, that I want me, I want us to put on because I have... I have recognized in my own life that it's easy to get caught up in the kingdoms and the world that we're part of 
that we live in because sometimes we live in Babylon. Okay, okay, let's come back to the text. So, verse four. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. I do think this is a double entendre. And I, again, don't mean to be grotesque. I think it's number one, come out of the city before I judge the city because Babylon's going to fall. But number two, there is an overtone of the prostitute here. Um, over and over again, the kings have committed adultery with her. The word there is where we get our word pornography. It's just, it's sexual immorality. It's, it's fornication. And so this, I think, is a double entendre of that, of that idea of like, come away from the prostitute. Come away from her, lest you take part in her. Notice that sins, but also in the consequences of those sins, the plagues that come. We've talked about plagues. For her sins are piled as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix the double portion for her cup she has mixed. She has glorified herself and lived in luxury. Notice that theme, lived in luxury. So give her like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow. Notice the arrogance of this. By the way, Babylon said the same thing in Isaiah. No one can touch me. This looks like Jezebel as well. I'm the queen. So she looks untouchable. I'm not going to see mourning. For this reason, plagues will come in a single day. Oh, just like that, that kingdom culture falls. I, in my lifetime, I'm, I'm 41. I'm just going to throw it on the table. Middle-aged is what they call it. That's always nice. That's nice of people to call me middle-aged. When college students do it, I get rather grumpy. Those of you who are older than 41, it's nice because you still think I'm young. It's amazing how that works out. Different audiences, different labels. But twice I've seen this dynamic happen in our world. September 11th, and whatever last year was, in a single day, I can't remember if I told you, I know I told my college students, I, September 11th, I was in Azure Christian College in the missions building, second floor, Brian Brubaker's class. That means nothing to you, but it means something to me. Uh, we turned on as the first tower had been hit. We didn't know what had happened. We watched, long story, watched the second tower fall. Pieces started coming together. I needed to go pick up my fiance. She was living in an apartment. What is behind uh, now, the Schubert Mitchell offices over on Range Line. You're picking up the, the picture where the apartments are. I'm driving down Florida Street. I turn, there's a gas station there on Florida Street. There is a line that's probably a quarter of a mile, maybe longer line uh, to the gas station there. And, and prices at the gas stations are all starting to go up. I remember that moment. And, and I remember people crying over the next few months more about the stock market than about the souls of people that were lost. Last year was what it was. But I see that this text is sometimes true of us, even God's people, sometimes true of me. And it's a clarifying text that asks me as a litmus test to clarify my allegiance to Jesus and to find my security, my pleasure, and my investment in his kingdom, my allegiance to him. In a single day, death, mourning, and famine, she will be burned with fire. For mighty is the Lord who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, notice what the kings do. They weep and they wail when they see the smoke of her burning. They stand far off in torment, and they say, alas, you great city, 
you mighty city, Babylon. In a single hour, your judgment has come. Now notice who comes next, the merchants. The merchants of the earth, they weep and they mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Verse 12, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth. What does that remind you of? The prostitute. That's how she's dressed. And all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble. This is almost like Paul going, these are the things that were on the ships of Rome as I traveled around the Roman Empire. John here is, is, is relisting some of the things he's observed. Paul is listing some of the things, or, or Paul could easily list some of these same things uh, as just the things that they observe in their, their culture. But notice it gets all the way down to the very end, and it's slaves. That is human souls. It's a corrupt, corrupt system that builds wealth on the backs of other people. And we have some of that in our own history. And I think it's one of those things that we have to be aware of uh, when it comes to not just our world, but also John's audience need to be aware of it in their world, is that some of their luxurious living was at the cost and expense of someone else. And I'll be, I recognize that there's some political charge to that. I think Revelation doesn't let you to be neutral. It wants to expose some of the spiritual realities of our world and have our allegiance be ultimately to Jesus. And, and we have to ask some questions. How do we apply that? What does it look like to, to buy, sell, trade, to live in luxury at the expense of other people? Maybe it's to treat other people fairly. Maybe it's to be generous. Maybe it's to seek out justice. There's some traits we see in the Bible that are true of God's people as they seek out these things. But you could list, by the way, the number of these items, and guess what you'd come up with as a number? A 28. Now, I don't know if that's significant or not, but here's what we've seen as significant numbers. Seven, a number of completion, and four, a number of describing all of the earth. If I'm doing my math right, that's 28. Maybe that's what's going on. It's just a picture of, it's not just these items, it's all kinds of items like this. So, I don't know, just... Amazon it, right? I mean, this is, this is your Amazon cart. We can go other places. We can call it Walmart, right? And, and again, I'm not calling out one of those entities, one of those businesses, because it's spiritual realities behind some of those things. Because God did create us in this world to enjoy. God created, and, and unlike what the Greeks said, God created, and what did he say at creation? It is good. So he created us to enjoy, but not at the expense of others, and not at the expense of our allegiance to him first. What are idols? taking things that are not gods and making them gods. One of the ways that you expose whether you are worshiping idols rather than worshiping the lamb is when those idols are taken away and you feel exposed. You feel insecure. You been there? We're worried about your bank account. I've been there. We first moved here. We had $10,000 of things that happened to our new house and cars. It was rough. Like the whole Dave Ramsey plan blew up. And there's a part of me that went, fallen, fallen is the emergency fund. And I, I, can put the, I can put false hope in things that I shouldn't find security in. And, and guess what it taught us to do as a family? First time in our life, we prayed this prayer and meant it literally. Give us this day our daily bread. You know what happened? Someone from this church, uh, her dad was a food bank manager. She didn't know we needed it. She started dropping off once a month, once a week, Bread, food. I was like, it like happened. Again, I'm being, trying to be a little bit vulnerable to you to recognize sometimes God wants to expose our idols. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it makes us weep. Sometimes it's really good for us. Because when he exposes them, 
It can draw hearts back to him and put our security back in him. That's why we don't have to worry because he'll take care of us. We don't have to cry because we have our security and our hope in him. So as we continue to walk through um, this, this list that has been, we go on in verse 14, the fruit that your soul longed for. Oh, this is a haunting verse. The word longed for is the word to desire upon. It's a compound word in the Greek. It's to desire upon. It's used over and over again to talk about a, des- a fleshly desire, a desire that's contrary to the desires of the kingdom. Your soul longed for this fruit and it's gone. All your delicacies, all your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained their wealth from her, they'll stand far off and in fear and in torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, the great city clothed in fine linen, purple, scarlet. This is the list of the prostitute, by the way, uh, as well. Scarlet adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. For in a single hour, all the wealth has been laid to west and the, the, uh, waste. And the shipmasters and the seafaring men, the sailors and all those who trade on the sea. You kind of get the point, right? They cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What was like the great city? What city was like her? Verse 19, they threw dust on their heads. They wept and they mourned. They cried out, alas, alas for the great city. Where have all the ships gone at sea and grown rich by her wealth? In a single hour, she's laid to waste. And yet, as God's people, we rejoice. You saints, apostles, prophets, God has given judgment. Why? Because she was a part of the persecution we saw in chapter 6. She's a part of the pulling away, the compromise, the seduction of God's people. And a mighty angel took a stone that looked like a millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, this is like Babylon. Babylon will be the great city thrown down in violence. She will be no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be heard no more. The craftsmen and a craft will be not found in her anymore. The sound of the mill will not be found anymore. The lamp All these things that generate prosperity are images of prosperity and hope and life. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard no more. Your merchants were great ones. Notice who are the great ones in this nation. It's not those who are aligned with God or spokespersons for God. It's those who are wealthy. All the nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of the prophets, the saints, and all who have been slain on the earth. Revelation chapter 18 for us is a warning that we too, like John's audience, can at times compromise with this prostitute, this spiritual reality that is at work as a part of the, the tactics of, of the Satan, uh, our enemy in this world. And at the end of the day, what we find is that it will all be brought to destruction. This will be worthless. And if this is worthless, will I have invested my life in something, traded my life for something that is eternally valuable? Now, we did something goofy at our church one time uh, at a lesson similar to this. We took garage sale stickers. This is hokey, I get it. I'd probably never be able to get away with this in a place here. But we, we took garage sale stickers. And, and you know what you do? In fact, we're going to have a garage sale in a few weeks. That's not a commercial. It's just I hate garage sales. I'd actually give my wife $300 to not have a garage sale. But that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> we take garage sale stickers and we put a price on them. Well, we took garage sale stickers and we put eternal and temporary on these garage We printed on hundreds of garage sales. And then we gave a, a sheet of these to p- in people out in the chairs. And we said, we want you to actually like, mark items in your life. Like, what are they worth? And they actually started. So there were kids in our children's ministry running around with like priceless stickers on them, right? Eternal stickers on them. And there were, uh, again, just, they were cars that are worth uh, quite a bit uh, out, in the, out in the parking lot. And we were one of the wealthiest counties in Illinois. And, and so there were cars out in the parking lot that had temporary on it, worthless on it. It's important for us to recognize what has value and what doesn't have value in the kingdom of God. Because when that kingdom falls, when that culture fails, what will have value? 
And, and I know in this last year, we've asked some of those questions because we recognize like food matters, like toilet paper matters, right? Trade your life for toilet paper, right? It's worth everything you got. See, we don't have to panic when it looks like the world is crumbling around us when we're part of a city that will last and we worship at a throne of a king who is ultimately in control. I, I know that this, you're, you're like me. Man, I really want to figure out like the nature of the seven heads and what's the eighth head and the nature of the 10 horns. And I want to be able, and I'm still studying. I still want to try to figure that out. I don't think it's worthless. But sometimes I think I can get lost in some of those like pop quiz Bible things and miss the spiritual lesson behind it that actually is a little bit more revealing of a mirror in my heart that causes me to be aligned a little bit more in worship to Jesus. So Revelation chapter 18 uh, excuse me, chapter 19, verses one through 10, brings us to, again, an end of a cycle, and it brings us to a moment of worship. See, your reaction to idolatry and imitation worship and imitation allegiance is the real thing. Life cereal has no imitation. There's certain kinds of coffee. I'm not gonna name it. You can't fake it. Sorry, Folgers doesn't count. I know some of you drink Folgers, and you'll probably be you know, horrified if I were to, to say that. No, no, there, there are things that are just not the real thing. This brings us to the real thing. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Notice we're in heaven now, crying out, hallelujah, worship God, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power. These are all things that Rome claimed to be the savior of the world, to be in power, they belong to our God. His judgments, notice we're in a section of judgments. This is the first domino to fall. His judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged on her the blood of the servants. Revelation chapter 6, how long, O Lord? Once more they cry out. Now what do they cry out? Hallelujah. Smoke goes up from her forever and ever. They see the justice of God being carried out. And on the 24 elders, not this, the 24 elders, the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped. This is Revelation 4 and 5. They worshiped the one seated on the throne saying, amen and hallelujah. From the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the great of a mul uh, voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder. I love that, that imagery. Crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage supper of the lamb has come and the bride, she's made herself ready. The contrast with the prostitute. It was granted her, not because of anything she's done, but because of her allegiance to Jesus is granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What are good deeds that we find in, the, in, in Scripture? It's to take your life and live it as a steward, a servant, leveraging all your time, all your resources, all your gift sets, everything for the worship of God. Paul says, I poured my life out as a drink offering on the altar in worship. So the marriage supper has come. She's made herself ready. Verse nine, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. I told you I haven't gone to a wedding supper in a long time. And you know, it's one of those things where the wedding supper's fun. The wedding ceremony's okay. Wedding supper's a whole lot better. It's this picture of a feast. 
of relationship that is finally brought together of love and covenant and commitment. And here's this picture of the family of God sitting down and that this moment that at communion every week we anticipate is now brought to fruition. These are the true words of God. Then verse 10, a weird thing happens, and we'll kind of close with this weird thing. Then I fell down at his feet. John, what in the world are you doing? I think John's sometimes like us. I mean, this is just the humanity of John, right? Peter does crazy things too. We're like, Peter, why do you do that? Jesus is transfigured. Hey, let's build some tents. What? Why are you doing that? Like, stop it, right? But I know, I mean, I do this in my own discipleship. And, and perhaps there's a couple of things going on here. So notice what happens. I fell down at his feet, as in the feet of this angel. That, that looks like God, I don't know, maybe he's making a mistake. But I don't think so. I fell down at his feet as to worship him. But he said to me, you don't do that. I'm a fellow servant. I'm just a servant. What do we find? It's only God on the throne. It's only Jesus. It's only his spirit. We only worship him. He's the only thing worthy of our worship. Maybe what's going on here is there is this temptation to worship other things that are spiritual that are maybe even part of God. Not like we kind of sometimes do this. We give some things that are good things more attention than what they really deserve. And we make them God things. That's the essence of idolatry. Did Israel do that from time to time? Yes, they did. I don't know all that's going on here. Maybe this is something that John just goes, hey, this is what I did. Like in that moment, I was like, okay, I'm just feeling like worship. I'm just going to worship. And he worshiped the wrong thing. I don't know. But what we do find is this, is this correction that says there's only one thing worthy of your worship. So can I, can I give you this lesson? Worship is what? To say you are worthy. So I'm going to give this to you, this attention to you. I'm going to bow down and kiss at the feet of. That, that's the etymology of that word. I'm going to say that you're worth my life. I'm going to say that you're worthy of my life. So John says, or, or the angel says to John, I'm, I'm just a servant with you and your brothers who hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So in this end, what we come to and where we'll pick up again next week is we come to this, this moment to where Jesus is going to come riding in. And what we're going to start out next week talking about is this historical phenomenon, this, this thing that happened in Rome. That, it happened all the time. It was a parade. We have parades in our culture all the time. So we're going to start talking about parades next week, but talk about a Roman triumphal procession and some of the imagery, uh, the propaganda that would be a part of that. Because I think that paints a picture for what is happening in chapters 19 through 20 as Jesus comes riding in as a, on a horse, on a white horse, a conquering horse. But behind him become these enemies that are already conquered that look like they're going to rise and then automatically they're destroyed again. Kind of like the beast here and the prostitute here. They, is, they are, they are not, and they come up and they rise up and then they're destroyed again. And we find that we worship the one who is ultimately in control. That leads us, I don't want you to miss two weeks. I'm saying all that to say this. Come back in two weeks. I know it's going to be nice out. It's going to be beautiful. But I, but I want Revelation to give you this picture. Because ultimately, it's this destination that is the contrast to the culture in which we live that the prostitute represents. This is imitation. When you dwell with God and all your needs are met, peace and contentment are complete, you no longer hunger, you no longer thirst. It's a cheap replacement to be a citizen of this world. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word. God, I want to admit, I, I don't know so many things that I want to know. God, I pray that you speak 
through your spirit, through your word, to teach us the truth, to teach us, God, how to be more like Jesus. God, to expose our hearts so that you can cleanse our hearts. We thank you for your grace. We are not deserving of any of this. And yet you call us your children. You call us your people. God, you want to dwell with us. So God, help us recognize you in worship this week and dwell with you as we live out the rest of this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.